Let me challenge you. You've heard about all these teams that we've had out and coming back and teams that we have out. Let me encourage you occasionally to go to warreninintheworld.com. I believe that's a .com. Let me check and make sure I've got that right. Yeah, warreninintheworld.com. You can catch up on blogs, uh, the teams write while they're gone. If they have a particular prayer need for that day, or you can pray for that or for that trip. You can find out what's going on. You can see the photos that they take. So go to warreninintheworld.com. You can catch up on the trip that's out. You can catch up on trips that have gone, trips that are coming up. It's just a great place for you to go and get information. Uh, so we finished Jonah last night, or last week, and we're getting back into some of the regular minor prophets. And so I thought as a way to get started in the next minor prophet, I would have you watch this. That was a commercial. Can you guess what that was a commercial for? Jewelry. It's a J.C. Penney's commercial for jewelry. I love that commercial. There's actually a longer version of that you can find online where, where the guy finally gets out. And, uh, and then winds back up in the doghouse again. So uh, I show you that because the book we're talking about tonight basically has God's people in the doghouse. I mean, they're deep in the doghouse. Uh, so we're going to look at, let's see if I can get it working. It's not going to work, Ezra. There you go. Thank you. This is what we're studying tonight. This is the book of Micah. Get it? See the microphone up there? Mic. The mic is speaking. And in the courtroom, there's a son, which is a day, and a judge. And so Micah is about the day of judgment. Yeah, I have to stretch a little bit to piece that one together. It's not as easy as the book of Jonah was. Uh, but that's the book of Micah. That'll help you remember what Micah is about. Micah is about pronouncing the day of judgment. And so we need to get into the book of Micah. If you got it open, turn there. If not, turn to the book of Micah. And we're going to try to do this in one night. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, I know you're skeptical. I am too. But we're going to see if we can do it in one night. So Micah, chapter 1. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. All right, let's stop right there. Let me give you a little bit of uh, background. Hit another slide. Thank you. The word Micah, the name Micah means who is like the Lord. Who is like the Lord. And, and it's interesting that when you get to the end of the book of Micah, you almost have that phrase there in chapter 7, around verse 18, I believe, who is a God like you? So that's, the, that's what Micah means, is who is like the Lord. He was probably a very poor farmer, probably a peasant farmer. Uh, he lived in the rural area about 20, uh, 20 miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, he was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Amos, the prophet Hosea. So they all lived at about the same time. Now, here's something different about Micah. Micah prophesied to both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, which is different because most prophets prophesied to one or the other. But he prophesied to both. And, and in his day and time, what that meant was he was just doubly hated. 
you know. Both kingdoms hated the things he was saying to them. And this is, this is the book of Micah. Now, notice it says, he saw, uh, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Those are the capital cities of the kingdoms. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Ju- Jerusalem is the capital city of the southern kingdom of Judah. So even though it says Samaria and Jerusalem, he's talking about those two kingdoms. Uh, so let me give you an outline, a quick outline for the book. Thank you. Here's a three-point outline for the book of Micah. Micah has seven chapters in it. So retribution, chapters one through three. And then there's restoration, chapters four through five. And then there's repentance in chapters six through seven. So we're going to break those down and and buzz through them. We're not going to read every single thing in the book of Micah. We'll skim some of it. We'll drop in and, and read some of it. But let's go to the first one. Let's go to restoration. Or, excuse me, back up, retribution. I'm ahead of myself. Let's go to retribution. Sorry, Ezra. Uh, look at chapter 1, starting in verse 2. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. Okay, this is courtroom talk. You're going to see in other places in the book of Micah where it almost sounds like God is presenting a case in the courtroom. And so this is what he's doing here. He sets that up in the very beginning. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and he will come down. Now listen to this language. Micah has this really stark, harsh, brittle kind of language. And so, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. And listen to the verbiage. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Again, Judah and Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So this is what he tells, tells them. It's, it's this dramatic language that basically says God's making it clear that he's bringing judgment. Now, the problem is a lot of people outside the church, and, and to be honest with you, a lot of people in the church believe that God is just this mean God who gets off on punishing people, that, that he, just, it's just, he gets his kicks by trying to catch us when we mess up so we can punish us. But to make it clear that he's not that God, look at verse 8. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentations like the jackals and mournings like the ostrich. For her wounds, speaking of Israel, is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gates of my people to Jerusalem. So God's saying, yes, there's this judgment coming. But I don't like it. I wish I didn't have to do it. I wish there was some other way. And then in the next verses, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 10, say 10 through verse 14 or so, 
uh, through 16, I guess. That's basically Micah saying God is going to judge all the towns around his hometown. If you got on a, on a Bible atlas or a map, you would see from his hometown, these are all just kind of circled around his hometown. Micah lived in a place that was right on the border with the Philistines. And so all of these around him were lining up for judgment. And then, then God, through Micah, he testifies against them and he lists all their offenses. He lists all their offenses. Go to verse, uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Woe to those who, here it is, who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. I mean, they're not just waking up and doing wickedness. They're creating it in their heads before the next day. I mean, it's like their to-do list. You know, when you go to bed and say, okay, tomorrow I've got to do this and this and this. This is what they were doing. How can I cheat the next person out of this? How can I gain a little bit more here? This is, the, this is who they'd become. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in their power of their hands. Here's what they do. They covet fields and they seize them. And houses, and they take them away. They oppress a man and his house, and a man and his inheritance. Okay, so he starts listing those. And then also, if you go down and look at verse 8. You strip, but lately my people have risen up as an enemy. And then he says, you strip the rich robe from those who have passed by trustingly, with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. This is a list of their offenses. Again, it's still courtroom dialogue. Here is what they've been charged with. And, and then, if you look up in verse 3... Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against his family, I am devising disaster. God's saying, here's a list of the charges, and because of these charges, here's the punishment that's coming. Very, very kind of a litiga lit litigation type of language. And then, as prophets do, and as we've seen this before in a lot of the prophets, they deliver this word of hope in the midst of the gloom and the doom. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. In the midst of all of this that's coming down, here's what God says. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel, and I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pastures, a noisy multitude of men. And he who opens the breach goes up before them. And they break through the pass and pass the gate by going, uh, going out by it. And their, kings pass, their king passes before them. And the Lord is at their head. And here's the picture he's painting. Basically, God comes down and does this. And everything gets broken and shattered. And then God says, but there's coming a time I'm going to gather it all back up. I'm going to put it all back together. And he says, I'm going to gather the remnant of my people that get scattered everywhere. I'm going to gather them together and I'm going to be like a shepherd. I'm going to gather them together in the pasture. And then I'm going to walk ahead of them and then they're going to follow me. This is the word of hope that's coming in the, in the midst of the punishment that's coming. And, uh, and, and prophets do that. 
And the reason prophets do that is because God does that. God's intention is not to discourage us so we can't get up and look up. His, his intention is not to take the wind out of our sails. He will always come back and say, but there's hope. But I'm still here. But I still love you. But I'm going to do this. And that's one of those cases here. Uh, but then the prophet rails again. When you get into chapter 3, then he begins to rail again, not just on the people in general, but on the leaders, on the priests and, the, and, and the, the political leaders, all those people that should know better. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. He's talking to a particular people. He goes on to say, You who hate good and love evil. This is their leaders. They hate good. They love evil. Who tear the skin from off my people. Hear the language again, how stark it is. Tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones. Who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. That's some really graphic language. Micah uses a lot of, of very concrete, stark language. But basically he's saying, you should know better. Why are you doing this? Go, back to, go down to verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against them who put nothing in their mouths. What he's saying is, these prophets will prophesy whatever you want them to as long as you treat them well. If you don't treat them well, they'll prophesy against you. Put a little money in their palm, they'll find you the table, that kind of thing. He goes on to say, therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. He's basically saying, because you do this, then you're not going to be able to see or prophesy or do all of those things I've called you to do. Look at verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest judgment. Now, these are rulers. These are supposed to be upholding the law, and yet they detest judgment. And they make crooked all that is straight. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. This is what they were doing. This is the, the dire straits that the children of Israel were in. And it says, yet they lean on the Lord. And they say, is it not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come to us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountains of a house a wooden height. What do you, what's he saying in all of this? Because you may think, what's this have to do with us? And this has everything to do with us. What's he saying about the leadership of his people? They're corrupt. They're crooked. They're liars. They do stuff for bribes and for, for benefits. I don't know about you. It may just be because I'm pessimistic, but that feels like a line from the nightly news to me. 
And, and God is saying, my people in general should know better, but especially my leaders. And so if you do this, as the leaders go, so go the people. And so all of these stark, this stark language that he uses could be applied to us at any point in time if we don't learn what they were supposed to learn. Okay. But notice that Micah distinguishes himself from, these, from the rest of these. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sins. The thing about, that was different about, J, about Micah was he was not speaking what they wanted to hear. He was speaking what God wanted him to hear. And that's not always pleasant. There's a lot of times that Scripture speaks to us and it steps on our toes and it bruises us and it hurts our feelings and, and, and we want to push back against it because it doesn't feel good. And so what the prophets, the false prophets and the rulers were doing was they were just speaking what felt good and making a little money on it on the side. So this was the retribution that was coming. And this is why it was coming. Because of these things. Now, starting in chapter 4, God kind of changes course a little bit. And he tells them about the restoration that's coming. And uh, you find that in chapter 4. You find that in chapter 5. And it kind of breaks down like this in these chapters. He talks about the restoration of Jude, uh, Jerusalem's prominence. Jerusalem used to be the head of everything and everywhere. Everybody came to Jerusalem. They were the prominent nation in all the world. Happened during the days of King David, especially in the days of Sol or early days of Solomon. But they are losing their, they've lost their prominence. And now all of these other nations are basically overrunning them and, and wiping them out. And the big Fall is coming. Assyria is going to take Israel down and, and Babylon is going to take Judah down. So that's coming. But God's saying there's coming a day when I'm going to restore the prominence of, of Jerusalem. You can find that in uh, starting chapter 4, starting verse 1. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be reestablished as the highest of mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills. And people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. It's talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem sets on a mountain. It's not the highest mountain, but it sets up on a mountain. And God's basically saying, I am giving Jerusalem back its prominence, back its importance, back its place in history, and, and with people and with nations. Uh, the latter part of verse 2, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many peoples and, may, and shall decide for strong nations. Hear the plurals, peoples, nations, not just the Jewish people, but all the people far away. Okay, so he talks about that. He talks about its prominence. And then he talks about how he's going to do that. He's going to restore peace. You can see that in the latter part of verse 3. They shall beat their, plow, their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war anymore. 
It's talking about the peace that's coming. So you have this prominence of Jerusalem. You have this peace of Jerusalem. You have prosperity. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. They shall not make, uh, and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. In other words, they will be prosperous. They will have plenty. And then, why is he going to do that? For all the people walk in each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever. So this is how he restores Jerusalem's prominence. So he starts off by talking about Jerusalem. Then he starts about gathering the remnant. Not only am I going to put Jerusalem back where it's supposed to be, I'm going to bring the people back. And you can see that in chapter 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion for this time forth forevermore. Then go down to verse 10. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country, you shall go to Babylon. He's talking about the exile into Babylon. And listen to what he says. There you shall be rescued, and the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So he's gathering them back. He's going to bring them back from, from Babylon. This is the restoration of the remnant. Okay, and then he talks about that some more in verse 6. I will assemble the lame, I will gather. He, he goes through all of that, but then he gets to this piece, the bringing of the ruler. So he starts with Jerusalem, then he goes to the remnant, and then he goes to the ruler that's going to accomplish all of this. Look at chapter 5. Look at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Where have you heard that verse before? Oh, come on, this is an easy one. Where have you heard that verse before? When Christ was born, the nativity, the prediction. I believe it's when Herod calls in the prophets, and after the wise men come and Herod sees the wise men, he says, what's this all about? And the prophets quote this passage of Scripture. That's why Herod knew to go to Bethlehem to kill the children. Because it was based off of this passage of Scripture. This is the bringing of the ruler. And it goes on to say, therefore, verse 3, he shall never give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the names of the Lord our, his God. And you can go on and read about that. Now, this all sounds really heady, and what does that have to do in 2018 when it's raining outside? This prophecy, all this stuff about what Jesus was going to do, was given at a time when it was really bleak and really dark and when there was very little hope and when it seemed like it was all over and when it seemed like it was just too hard. Been there? Done that? That's how this is applicable to us. 
This was given in a day when people who should know better didn't and didn't act like it. Sound familiar? That's why this is important for us. This is a big deal for us. It's not just a dusty old prophet that meant something for Israel and Jerusalem. It's for us. Where You could pull out Israel or pull out Jeru- uh, Judah and plug in the United States. It's the same deal. And you say, well, what, what can I do about our nation? Nothing. But you can do something about you, which affects you and your family and the people around you, which affects the people around you. That's how that works. So this is important for us. This is the restoration. This is how restoration happens. Now, let's go back to the next one. Repentance. This is the last two chapters of the book. Last two chapters of the book talk about repentance. And to call his people to repentance, God, through the prophet Micah, he sets up this courtroom scene. It's kind of spooky when you really understand it and you start reading through it. He sets up this scene as if it's a courtroom. Look at chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And think of a courtroom when you read this. Hear what the Lord says. Arise. Plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. He goes on to say, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So what happens when a judge comes into a courtroom? Everybody stands. All rise. When a defendant has to speak for himself, they stand up. God says, arise and plead your case. That word case means, it's it's kind of a similar word to lawsuit. Plead your case, plead your lawsuit before the mountains and the hills. Now, that's kind of poetic justice, uh, poetic language rather. But basically, think of it. It's as if God is saying, you know these mountains and these hills that have been here for eons? who have watched generation after generation pass, who have watched, watched nation after nation, they've just stood here and watched all of it. They've watched what you're doing. They're the witnesses. They're going to tell what they have seen. This is a courtroom scene. And so he calls his people to repentance by setting up this courtroom scene. And then he makes his case as if he's a prosecutor. Look at verse 3. Oh, my people... What have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak the king of Moab devised and how Balaam the son of Beor answered him? And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? He's basically saying, look, as a prosecutor, why, you don't have any reason to do this. What's your rationale for doing what you're doing? Because I didn't give it to you. Look what I've done for you here. Look what I've done for you here. Look what I've done for you here. You don't have a case against me is what he's saying, basically. And so he makes his case. And then the people get to cross-examine. Look at verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn from tra- for my transgression, from the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? In other words, it, it's basically saying, you can't be pleased. Nothing is ever good enough for you. There's never enough that I can do for you. You know, I think it's funny that he asked, should I give my firstborn? Well, that was what was set up in the Passover. God already decided that in Passover. That's what the sacrifice was for, so you didn't have to give your firstborn. But it's just this kind of exasperation and a little bit of pride involved in it. Well, what do you want? What do you want from me? So, God answers that. God responds. Look at verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. God answers. You know what? You're talking about there's never, I, I, there's not enough you can do for me. It'll never be enough. Well, do I do this? Do I? He said, really, I've already told you. There's just three things here. And he breaks them down. And so he talks about you do justice. That's about morality. Part of the problem was that people were cheating people. They were tampering with the scales. They were making more money than they were giving product. They were cheating one another for a buck. And so God says, hey, the first thing is just do what's right. Do justice. And if you translate it into this day, if you get paid for eight hours, work for eight hours. If it wasn't yours, don't take it. You know? Do justice. And then it says, love kindness. It's talking not about morality. It's talking about charity. Love people. What do, you, what do I want you to do? I want you to love people. When? All the time. But what if they're unlovely? They will be. Love them anyway. And, and God gets to say that because he does that to us every single day. I mean, it's not like he's asking us to do something that he doesn't do. So love kindness. And then the third, to walk humbly with your God. Which means that I'm going to submit to him and he gets to be over me. I don't get to tell him what to do or how to do it. I just walk humbly with him. I'm talking about my way of life. Does this sound a little bit familiar to you? Remember in the New Testament when somebody comes up to Jesus and said, asking about what's the most important pieces of the law? What's the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's this. It hasn't changed. This was in the days of Micah to the days of Jesus. It's still the same. And so, basically, the prosecutor says, hey, you already know what to do. I've made it really simple. There's only three steps here, and you're still not doing it. So, then God presents the evidence. 
And you find this all like from verse 9 all the way through verse 12. He talks about uh, they're hanging on to treasures of wickedness. In verse 11, wicked scales and deceitful weights. So they were cheating people with what they were doing. They were full of violence in verse 12. They spoke lies, deceitful in their mouth, making desolate because of their sin. They're not satisfied. He basically says this this is a list of all the things you're indicted for. And then he not only does that, but he gives them a sentence. Look at verse 13. Therefore, because you've done these things, therefore I will strike you with a grievous blow. Well, what kind of blow? Sounds like he's going to wipe them out. No, here's the blow. Making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat and not be satisfied. You shall be hunger and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. You shall sow, verse 15, but not reap. You will tread grapes, but not drink wine. That is their sentence. In summary, the more you reach out for yourself, the less you're going to have. The more you try to accumulate, the more it seeps through your fingers. The more you try to build yourself up, the lower you get. That is the sentence for doing what they wanted to do, how they wanted to do it, when they wanted to do it. And if I had written it, I'd say, this is your sentence, I'm wiping you out. But which is, which is, what's the word I'm looking for? Which is more torturous? Should just be snuffed out or to constantly be pedaling the bike and never get anywhere? You know? That's basically what he's saying. Look, you're, you're going to save and put away and it's all going to be gone. You're going to be hungry and so you're going to eat and you're never going to get filled. It will never be enough. You've, you basically accused me of never being settled for enough. You're never going to get enough to be fulfilled. That is a sentence. That's a really tough sentence to live by. So finally, after all of this, you get to chapter 7, and there is a confession. took a long time to work this confession out. But by chapter 7, verse 1, you get a confession. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered. Meaning, I have nothing left. And when the grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat. No first ripe figs that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood. and Each hunts for the other with a net. Basically, he comes clean and says, this is where I'm at. I'm hopeless. I'm destitute. I brought this on myself. I have nothing. Nothing to dig myself out of this hole with. This is the confession. And then... The defendant basically throws himself, trusting the mercy of the court. Look at verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, listen to this, when I fall, I shall rise. 
And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be light to me. I will bear the indignations of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. Basically, he throws himself on the mercy of the court and he knows the court will be merciful. He knows he bought what he's into, but he knows he doesn't have to stay there. And he knows the Lord is not interested in keeping him stuck in that. He's interested in bringing him out of that. And so finally, the defendant is pardoned. Look at chapter, uh, verse 18 of chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? And he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And he will again have compassion on us and he will tread our iniquities underfoot and you will cast our sins into the depths of the sea and you will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have, shown, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. He basically is pardoned. I know this is coming. Now, notice that it doesn't come quickly. They are still going to be exiled in Babylon. They are still going to be defeated by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. It doesn't come quickly. And he doesn't expect it to. Have you ever had your children do something wrong and then they immediately know that they're in trouble and so they quickly say, I'm sorry. And you know they're not. Right? But they expect you to immediately make everything right. Okay. This is what happens with God. He's not going to immediately make everything right because our sin carries some consequences that, that we have to work through. And, and, and we don't have to work through them because God loves to torture us and punish us. We have to work through those so that we actually change and grow. And change and growth takes time. It doesn't happen quickly. But he was assured of the pardon to come. This is the book of Micah. Now, let me give you some very practical takeaways for us this evening. Because it's really hard. When you get into some of these minor prophets and some of these, it's really hard to, or, or maybe it's just me, but I read through and I go, okay, so, but what's this got to do with me? So maybe here's some practical takeaways that will answer that for you. One, though it may look like the guilty are getting away with it, God will never turn a blind eye to corruption. He will always reveal it and he will address it. Here's the problem for us. When his time is right, we want him to do it in our time, which is right now. But God will not turn a blind eye to corruption. In the New Testament, it says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And then it says this, I will repay. He's going to do that. He may not do it when you want to, when you want him to, how you want him to. He may not do it where you can see it, but he will do it. And that's what happens in the book of Micah. God is going to not turn a blind eye to their corruption. He's just not going to. And he's going to bring judgment on them. But he's going to bring judgment on them so they'll soften their hearts and he can get their attention and so he can bring them back. 
And that, that punishment, that destruction, you really wish God would bring upon your enemies? Guess what? He doesn't want to destroy them either. He wants to get their attention and bring them back. Just like he wants to do for you. Whether they turn will be up to them. Whether you and I turn is up to us. Another takeaway. Despite a world that's doing what it wants, God will restore his place and his people, and he'll do it through his son. No matter what the world's doing, no matter what it looks like, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, again, another parenting thing. Do you ever remember a time when your children felt the need to exercise their independence from you? And by your laughter, I'm assuming, yes, that's true. Okay. Were you ever worried in those moments, whether they were young, whether they were teenager, that, that somehow they were going to thwart everything you had created and planned and put together? Did you ever worry about that? Did you ever worry that their little plans were going to completely mess up everything you had built in your life? No. Why? Because you have the money. You have the mortgage. You own the cars. And they can't do it anyway. So you didn't fret it. Why would God fret a world that's going completely astray and doing its own thing? When he owns the money, he owns the mortgage, he owns the cars. He already has it. So he's going to do it. He's going to restore his place. He's going to restore his people. He's going to do it through his son. End of story. How that works, we'll find out. But you can trust that. God's requirements are not complicated. They are, whoops, where'd it go? Yeah, it jumped right out of there. Are not complicated. We are to treat people with fairness and loving kindness. And we are to live a life of humility before God. There's some good criteria to hold up when you look in the mirror. And, and, and you may be just a really naturally kind and loving person and treat people fair. But then the next question is, are you walking humbly before your God in submission to what he wants? Or are you just trying to do all this yourself? Because if you try to do it all yourself, then you just scored 50% on the two-point scale. I mean, this is an exam with two questions. When you were in school, didn't you hate those? You know, if there's only two questions on this exam and I blow one of them, I'm already flunking. This is why both of these are important. And again, it, it, it's not that we have to ramp this up and pedal the bike harder and try to do it all ourselves. We can't. It's why we need the fruit of the Spirit. And that's why we need Christ. And that's why we have to submit to Him so that He can do these things through us. But these two things are important. All right, two more. The pursuit of self-satisfaction results in a life of gnawing dissatisfaction. Let that one sink in for a minute. The pursuit of self-satisfaction will leave you with nothing but a gnawing sense of dissatisfaction. It will never be enough. 
It will never satisfy. I'm a, I'm a techie. I'm a nerd. I love the newest technology. Uh, but as soon as I buy a new computer, there will be a newer one with more memory and faster and do more things. As soon as I buy a new car, there'll be a newer one. Those things can't satisfy us if we put all our stock in them. If we don't build a life in Christ first, and then those things be supplemented. It's akin to trying to decorate your Christmas tree with only ornaments and no tree. It's pretty much what that's like. You have to start with the tree. Then you can start putting ornaments on the tree. And so if your life is all about you and all about satisfying you and getting what you think you need and getting all, then you'll constantly be dissatisfied. Because it'll never be enough. It just never will be enough. You might get this area good and then this area won't be good enough. And then you fix that and then this over. It just won't work. You can't hang ornaments unless you have a tree. All right, last one. Often our problem with God is our perception of God. When we see God clearly, we will see everything else clearly. That's what the last part of Micah, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over. Finally, the defendant saw who God really was. He wasn't out to get him. He wasn't some kind of sadist, just, just loved to see people punished and, and squirm and torture. When he saw who God really was, then everything else came into focus. And a lot of our problem is we have painted God as if he's somebody we know. I, I've told you this before. My, my dad was not the easiest person in the world to live with. He was an only child. His parents were ancient. He didn't have a good relationship with them. He was an alcoholic. Uh, he, he just was not easy to live with. He was not very pleased with anything. He saw your mistakes quicker than he saw your good stuff. A lot of times he didn't even talk to you. Uh, he, it was difficult. And for years, I thought God was just like him. And when my perception of who God really was changed, then my outlook and approach to life and God and everything else changed. And some of you have God painted in the frame that looks like somebody you know. Our perception of God has to get right. And it only gets right when we're in here. It doesn't get right by us saying, well, I think he's like this or I think. Go to here, get the definition, hang to that. Okay? All right, that's all I got. What have you got this evening before we go? Got a couple of minutes. Mike is not as good a story as Jonah. I'll get you that. But there's still some good stuff in there. Nothing? Yes, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, there's... There's some really good scripture memory. I mean, if you like to memorize scripture, there's some good pieces in there. 6 8 is a good one. Uh, 7 18, 19. Those are some good things to remember. Yeah, I think Pastor, when he was preaching through the Minor Prophets, asked us to memorize that. 
Need somebody else? That's the thing about the minor prophets. When I get done and it's time to go, I feel like I've depressed the hound out of all of you. Because the minor prophets are hard and they can be depressing. And that's why they typically end on a note of hope. All right, let me pray for you and I'll send you out of here. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for these that have gathered. Thank you for the privilege of opening your word and studying your word. Again, I'm always reminded that there's a lot of places on our globe that that's not only illegal, it'll get you put in jail or killed. So we have a tremendous freedom. And Father, we can't guarantee that we'll always have this freedom. So we should be digging in now, learning as much as we can now, hiding your word in our heart because we never know when we might not have it. And so, Father, help us to find something in the book of Micah that you want to apply to our heart and our mind, but more importantly, our walk and our way of life. Father, it always scares me to stand up and teach your word and think I'll walk out of here and just be the same guy I was when I walked in. And Father, help that to not happen to us. Help us to, to do what it says in Micah, to do justice, to love kindness, but most importantly, to walk humbly with our God tomorrow. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.